Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come into thy presence again grateful that thou art God, that thou hast undertaken for us, that thou hast redeemed us through Jesus Christ, hast provided for us day by day, and that all our tomorrows are in thy hands. So, our Father, we thank Thee. Teach us to rest in Thee. To come into Thy presence and take hands off our lives and commit them into Thy keeping. To know that Thy word is true. That we can cast our every care upon Thee. Knowing thou carest for us. Give us faith and grace, therefore, to take thee at thy word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our scripture is Ezekiel, the 22nd chapter. Ezekiel 22, verses 1 through 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Now thou, son of man, wilt thou judge? Wilt thou judge the bloody city? Yea, thou shalt show her all her abomination. Then say thou, Thus saith the Lord God, The city sheddeth blood in the midst of it, that her time may come, and maketh idols against herself to defile herself. Thou art become guilty in thy blood that thou hast shed. And hast defiled thyself and thine idols, which thou hast made, and hast caused thy days to draw near, and art come even unto thy years. Therefore have I made thee a reproach unto the heathen, and a mocking to all countries. Those that be near, those that be far from thee shall mock thee, which art infamous and much vexed. Behold, the princes of Israel, every one were in thee to their power to shed blood. In thee have they set light by father and mother. In the midst of thee have they dealt by oppression with a stranger. In thee have they vexed the fatherless and the widow. Thou hast despised mine holy things and hast profaned my Sabbath. And thee are men that carry tales to shed blood. And in thee they eat upon the mountains. In the midst of thee they commit lewdness. And thee have they discovered their father's nakedness. And thee have they humbled her that was set apart for pollution. And one hath committed abomination with his neighbor's wife. And another hath lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. And another in thee hath humbled his sister, his father's daughter. 
In thee have they taken gifts to shed blood, thou hast taken usury and increase, and thou hast greedily gained of thy neighbors by extortion, and hast forgotten me, saith the Lord God. Behold, therefore, I have smitten my hand at thy dishonest gain which thou hast made, at thy blood which hath been in the midst of thee. Can thine heart endure? Or can thine hands be strong in the day that I shall deal with thee? I, the Lord, have spoken it and will do it, and I will scatter thee among the heathen and disperse thee in the countries and will consume thy filthiness out of thee. And thou shalt take thine inheritance in thyself in the sight of the heathen, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Our subject today is blood guiltiness. Now the word blood guiltiness appears only once in the Bible, in Psalm 51. But the concept, the doctrine of blood guiltiness, appears in all of Scripture from start to finish. The word blood appeals repeatedly. Guilty of blood, the bloody city. All these are expressions whereby the concept of blood guiltiness is set forth, and many another expression is used. We first encounter blood guiltiness, of course, in the murder of Abel by Cain. When God says to Cain, What hast thou done? The blood of thy brother Abel cries out to me from the ground, cries out for vengeance, for judgment. Because Cain had shed his brother's blood, he had incurred blood guiltiness. We meet with it again in Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7. When God speaks to Noah after the flood, God declared to Noah, first of all, that he had permission to eat flesh, to kill animals for food. But he could not do so without thanksgiving and without an offering of the blood to God. Because the essence of all life is that God made it and God controls it, and nothing can be done apart from the permission of God. And man must give thanks in all things, including those things which are routine and everyday to God. Because all things that we do are by God's grace and permission. Thus, life even in animals had to be seen and must be seen as sacred from God with no killing except by God's permission. Second, God declared to Noah that whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That the penalty for murder is capital punishment. 
Significantly, capital punishment is required of anyone who kills man, whether it be a man or a beast. And this commandment is restated in Exodus. That any animal killing a man is to be put to death. Any man killing a man. Premeditated murder or unpremeditated but nonetheless murder is to be put to death. Then in Leviticus 17, 1 through 7, to skip over many passages, we read that unless every meat is brought before the Lord, Blood shall be imputed to that man. He hath shed blood. That man shall be cut off from among his people. That is, he shall be excommunicated. No man has a right to partake of any food which is God's property without thanksgiving to God and without a recognition of God without incurring blood guiltiness. Then, a little later in the same chapter, Leviticus 17.11, we read, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your soul, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement by means of the soul. The penalty for blood guiltiness is death. And either the guilty man must die or an atonement must be provided for him and received by him. And that atonement is provided by God. And the cross of Christ is that atonement for man's blood guiltiness. Now to skip over the thousands of references to blood guiltiness to Ezekiel 22. In Ezekiel 22, Ezekiel the prophet is ordered by God to read a bill of indictment against Jerusalem as the capital of Judea. And this is a bill of indictment calling for the death sentence against the nation and against the people. Their country is to be taken from them. They are to be destroyed. The land is to revert to wilderness and they are to spend a long season in captivity because of their blood guiltiness. Bill of Indictment then cites the reasons for their blood guiltiness. They are guilty of the loss of a true conception of God. Under the name of God, they are guilty of worshiping idols. And today, in virtually every church in the United States and around the world, what prevails is idolatry in the name of God. Because wherever you have a church that does anything but preach the word of God, it is guilty of idolatry. The social gospel is idolatrous worship. 
the humanism of the churches is idolatry. And this characterized Judea. They were guilty of blood also because of murder. And the failure of the corpse to deal with it. They were guilty of blood because of the contempt of parents. They set light, Ezekiel said, by their fathers and mothers. They were guilty of blood because of their exploitation of widows and orphans and of foreigners. Because of their usury. Because of their neglect of true worship. Because of their extortion and their bribery, the corruption of their corpse, because of their sexual immorality, and because of what God described as violence to my law. But most of all, later on in the chapter, in the 24th verse, or 30th verse, Ezekiel said, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. The most serious thing, the worst thing about Jerusalem was this. No voice was raised on the side of righteousness. No man dared to stem the tide of wickedness that swept through her streets. She was a land not watered and not rained upon in a day of indignation, according to verse 24. That is, the springs of her civic virtue were dried up and a blight had spread itself through all sections of her population. A blight of self-indulgence and unwillingness to stand up for the truth of God. This then was blood guiltiness. So that blood guiltiness referred quite obviously not simply to murder but to any and every offense against God. The essence the meaning of blood guiltiness is this, that God declares he has an absolute property right over all men and the entire universe. We are totally God's property. He made us out of nothing. We owe him absolute and total allegiance. And as a result, to the extent that we deny God his property rights, we are guilty of blood guiltiness. The meaning of the tithe, the giving of 10% of our income to the Lord, is simply this. It is a token payment which God himself has established, whereby we acknowledge God's absolute property right over us. And God 
lays down this requirement for this token tape, a modest one. For today, the civil government in the United States takes better than 43% of our income through taxes, direct or hidden, and shows a far greater demand upon us than does God. God's absolute property right is manifested through his law. The purposes of God are wholly good. The purposes of God's law are to bring us to our fulfillment in Christ, to give us peace and joy in him, to give us life. And Moses makes it clear that this is the purpose of the law. That ye might live. But because man is guilty, is fallen, he is not able to keep the law and to have life. And so Christ, through his atonement, whereby he pays the penalty for us, for our blood guiltiness, and makes us new creatures in him. Christ enables us to keep the law, to live in terms of the law. And therefore to avoid blood guiltiness. Now the fundamental principle of secularism is that there are vast domains of our life that are free from God. There are areas where God has no property rights. According to secularism, the state is a neutral institution. The state has no obligation to be Christian. In fact, its duty is to be neutral. This is the theory. But in the sight of God, this is to incur blood guilt. Because it is to trifle with the life, with the soul of man, who must be reared under godly law. The idea that education can be separated from God and be neutral, again, is false. What it does is to deny the religion of scripture, to adopt the religion of humanism and to declare that God has no property rights over education. And again, it incurs blood guilt. For any man to assume that his life day by day is free from God, and that God has no property rights over his life except when he goes to church, is again to incur blood guiltiness. Thus our modern life is under judgment. And our modern world is guilty of blood. It is guilty of destroying and damaging the life of man because of its secularism, because of its denial of 
God's property rights. And thus its every activity incurs blood gift. The Christian does not. The Christian has been freed from blood guiltiness by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Because he is our representative and he has accepted the penalty for our sin and rebellion and has made us new creatures in himself. We are no longer now guilty of sin as anomia. There are two words in the New Testament for sin, hamartia and anomia. And these two are significantly different. Anomia comes from nomos, law. And ah, meaning anti-law, against the law, or no law. And anomia means that one is against law, anti-law, in all his being hostile to law, God's law. No Christian is guilty of anomia. A Christian is guilty of hamartia, which is a particular sin. We can commit particular sin. We can be guilty of a violation of this or that particular law. Because while we are, by virtue of our regeneration, now working our way towards perfect sanctification, but never able to attain it in this life, we stumble as we go forward very often. But because we are new creatures in Christ, in spite of all our stumbling, our direction has one purpose, one goal. And therefore, though we commit sins, hamartia, which are all forgiven by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we never commit anomia, living without law and against law. Now, the essence of the modern world is that it is guilty of anomia, and many a man who sometimes can say, I commit fewer sins, hamartia, than most Christians, is nonetheless far worse than the worst of Christians, because he is guilty of anomia, lawlessness. Being a law unto himself and denying the absolute property right of God over him. And this is blood guilty. It is a sin that requires the penalty of death. Because it is a sin. It is a capital offense. The purposes of law, God's law, as we have seen, are holy good. 
God's purpose is to bring us to fulfillment in him. Now the modern, secular, anti-Christian faith is unknown God, professes to have the same living nature, the fulfillment of man, man's will, paradise redeemed, heaven on earth. And we can agree that these men who rule today in Washington, in London, Paris, Moscow, and elsewhere, in their intentions are good. The very words they use, the welfare state. The language they speak about concern for man's humanity indicates, indeed, that their purposes are idealistic, that their will is totally evil. Because they begin by robbing God of his property rights over them, denying God's property rights over other men, and then they proceed to accomplish this good intention by further robbery, by robbing some to give to others. And this is their welfare, this is their goodness. And so it begins and ends in lawlessness, ammonia. And it compounds love guilt. We then face a generation that is deeply guilty of love before God. Because it has denied its property right. It has at best paid lip service to him and drawn its way in utter contempt and forgetfulness of him. And when we stand in terms of the word of God, we stand very much as Ezekiel did when he was commissioned to declare judgment upon the bloody city. Now thou son of man, wilt thou judge, wilt thou judge the bloody city? Yea, thou shalt show her all her abominations. And every church and every group and every individual that stands in terms of the whole counsel of God immediately by his stand becomes an indictment to the rest of the world. By his insistence, even in his own personal life on God's absolute property rights, he is a standing offense to all of those who deny God's property rights and who are guilty of blood, who sin against their own soul by their denial of the principle of life, God. So the hand of every man is raised against them. Yet we have this address. Although they seem so powerful, these modern states, Modern secular men, God has pronounced judgment upon them as surely as He pronounced 
judgment upon Jerusalem and Judea. And though they marked in all their pomp and circumstance and in their assurance that they are marching to a victory and that they will soon have total property rights over all men, they are marching to the gallows of God. And he will in his own time execute judgment upon them. Though we by comparison seem so few and weak, we have the blessed assurance that because we have been cleansed with blood guiltiness through the atoning sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, we march the victory. For this is the victory which overcometh the cross, even our faith. So declared the Apostle John. And in the face of all these things, we need to stand therefore. We affirm that God who cannot lie has declared in his word the certainty of judgment upon those who transgress his who are guilty of omnomia all of them. And we shall see his judgment. And we shall see our victory. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank thee that thou hast called us. Under the glorious liberty of the saints of God, that thou hast made us new creatures in Christ, hast established us upon the assurance of victory, and has given us a clean conscience undivided, and hast made us sons and heirs of thy victory. Now, Father, make us strong and bid ourselves. We may not fail against the powers of darkness, but stand on the victory. In Jesus' name. Amen. We have no property rights over ourselves, and so suicide again is a sin because it is assuming that our life is our property. <coughs> it is murder, yes. Because I have no right to take anyone else's life because it is God's life. He created it. No man can take that life except in terms of God's law. He is guilty of murder or some other offense calling from uh, the death penalty. Similarly, we have no more title for our life than we have over our nation. It is God who has absolute property rights. 
And this is the basis for the physical prohibition of suicide. It is a sin. It is a violation of God's property rights in a society. Except that the Bible does not recognize the principle of neutrality. That all men are at enmity with God, far more emphatic, will not mutually neutralize. And so it's either enmity or friendship. And so anomia, as it is used in the scripture, definitely means lawlessness and anti law. Yes. Very good question. In First John, we are told that any man who says he has not committed sin is a liar. The word that is used there is panakia. A m a r t i a. The uh, little uh, comma above it in the Greek just indicates an H sound. So in English, you could put an H in front of it. H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A. Amartia. So that anomia is used later on in the Gospel of John to indicate that the Christian is not a sinner in this sense. Yes. I think this is one of the 
Richard's areas of growth. If you cultivate this habit of continual transfer, once you get into this practice, you'll find yourself doing it not once or twice in a day, but dozens and dozens of times. And this does produce a tremendous growth and a tremendous sense of peace and assurance that you face all your daily problems. It involves truly resting in the Lord, and very soon you will be able to concept of what rest really means and what interest means. This is one of the uh, most neglected and in some senses most startling aspects of what Scripture has to say. Yes. Um. I don't think you can say there are so many doctrines because you can coalesce a number of them into one. And you can refine them into a great many. For example, you can speak about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and make that one thing, but you can then subdivide that into the doctrine of the Father, and of the Son, and then of the Holy Ghost. So it's all three. The doctrine of the ontological trinity and the doctrine of the economical trinity in various aspects. Of the life of the then you can go into the doctrine of predestination and so on. So that you see, you can take the general heading, the doctrine of God, and divide it into about 20 or 30 heads. You could do the same thing with regard to the doctrine of uh, sin. The doctrine of the Christian life, the doctrine of salvation, so that uh, a list of the basic doctrines, the more detailed you became, the more uh, numerous the list would be. No. The social gospel people deny the validity of these doctrines because they say the only thing that matters is what to do for man. In other words, God is not important. So that they are anti-credal, anti-doctrinal churches. To them, doctrine is unimportant because God is unimportant. Man is everything. No. I belong to a church which believes that the church has no right to legislate in a number of matters, well, any matter where the church or where the Bible does not speak. But this is a matter of individual conscience. That the Bible does not speak, for example, about smoking 
or dancing or drinking, and therefore no one can say this is good or evil, this is a matter of Christian liberty for the individual to decide for himself. So that I do not feel I have the right to express my opinions on these subjects because I have one obligation, and that is to declare the word of God, not to go beyond that, lest my personal preferences or dislikes influence anything. Yes. The question of birth control is a little more complex. Now, in the Bible, a fertility is spoken of as a blessing from God. However, God makes it clear that the fertility of the ungodly is no pleasure to him. So that God has a double uh, law here, as it were. The mandate to the believers is to increase and multiply. It's not spelled out more specifically than that. To the ungodly, God says that nothing they do seems to him, and it is listed a few times in the uh, scripture as a matter of displeasure to him that they have increased. I think I have a list of some such verses here. Ezekiel 5, 7, and 8, Isaiah 49, 19, and 20, Jeremiah 15, 9, Amos 1, 13, and several other verses that go into this unblessed truthfulness of the ungodly. Whereas other verses giving the contrary for believers, uh, Genesis 9, 1, be fruitful and multiply and return to the earth. Genesis 9, 7, Leviticus 26, 9, Psalm 128, verses 3 and 4, and other such verses. Yes. Right, right. Yes, very definitely. That's quite a question. How specifically are race and predestination uh, interlinked? Well, certainly God's predestination covers all things. So that we must say that whatever has happened has happened by the predestination of God, and yet, as I've indicated before, and we will go into it a few months perhaps from now, 
predestination does not destroy human responsibility, it only emphasizes it. Now, uh, we cannot deny that the doctrine of predestination is totally anti-qualification. What it simply refers to is that God does make a difference between people. And this is the offense of the doctrine of predestination. That's why every now and then I find college students saying that out of a, out of context seemingly, a professor in some class or other, psychology or political science, launched into an attack on predestination. They couldn't see the connection of what he was talking about. The connection is very because he was totally equalitarian, he had to attack this concept. Because this emphatically declares that God makes a difference. So that there are differences of attitude, differences of reference. Now, this does not mean that those who have lesser abilities are less because very often a child who may be uh, not as talented as other children may be loved more, may be more lovable than others. And God makes it clear also to Israel that uh, I did not choose you because you were the most or the most remarkable of any people because you were among the least of them. But I have chosen you out of my grace and my love. So the predestination first indicates there is no such thing as equality in God's sight, but this is a mystical doctrine. And second, that superiority is no necessary index to justice. Because the superior, uh, God says, the wise are to be confounded in their wisdom when they separate themselves from God. Any other
only melting as well as others the same God. And in Adam and Eve, all the genetic things of the world were present. So that they represent all the genetic things of the world. Enoch and that original family came off and came Noah after the flood. Now, in the early period, in the first few generations, there was clearly, and we are told that this was the city, marriages of brothers and sisters, as there had to be. This was genetically possible without any damage because the genetic Strings were so diverse that each child was almost, in modern terms, unrelated to the other child since the genetic potentiality was so great in the parent strain. Now, as the centuries passed and people went into different areas, they began to Read in terms of certain standards, so that the different races chose certain standards as their standard of beauty. And this became the idea of it. For example, we know in China that one of the things that over the centuries spread out the riches of man was that uh, they regarded a very hairy man as a uh, barbarian. In fact, the uh, expression for a family is a very barbarian. Now, in that standard, they naturally send it over several thousand years to see what people have. We do know, for example, in Western civilization, not very high, certain ideas that you would come into being and for time came to advance of me. And again we see, for example, the ego group has been several times in Western civilization highly admired as the most uh, marvelous standard of beauty. So that uh, those who weren't lucky enough to be born with a fine big we will be, then mothers would take and work for marriage. The fathers of the marriage and they were one to the team and do it and they give it that attention. Now, how much left it stand on Western man? So that compared, for example, with the Orientals and with others, he has a big nose. Now, it's been selectivity, you see, of being different standards. It has led to the development, genetically, of varying things. But all these are potentially in our needs. In the evolution of the idea of the family of the situation, do you work there? No. In that, uh, in Adam and Eve, these things were all present potentially that they represented something totally different. And they were created for the good. But 
the human standard is going to be harder. Whereas God created the differences in the beginning so that the differences might emerge. So this is going contrary to God's plan. We want in all life the UN idea is the grand man. But God didn't intend that to be. And Adam and Eve had were two great speaking to this very, very diverse generation in them to set into motion these radical differences. Actually, had articles about his family life 
And then they found out it was a peccary too. So these people have all the prestige because our modern world gives them the prestige, but uh, they're putting out a lot of nonsense. There's a book that's been written now by a biochemist who is an evolutionist, Kirkup is his name, his name is K-D-R-K-D-C. It's uh, one of a series uh, of uh, reports. And he does uh, some plain speaking. He says most of these books and psychopathies are virtually all these evolutionary truths uh, are full of holes. They talk as though they had some special revelation and knew how it all happened when there's no evidence of it, and so on. What he is saying is simply this. I take it on faith. This is my religion. There's no evidence for it, but I believe it. And I hope someday we're going to find evidence for it. But he knows it isn't there and it's gone. There is no evidence for evolution whatsoever. It is a matter of faith, it is a matter of religion. And George Bernard Shaw said that the reason why people jumped at the doctrine of evolution was to get away from the doctrine of God. That's it. Very clear. And we know that's true. The textbooks give us a myth how the whole world raised its and in awe when the origin of species came out. And everybody was so against it, and that poor man was persecuted. That's nonsense. The first edition of the origin of species sold out on the day of publication. On the day of publication, 1859. This was the book everybody was waiting for. And when they heard there was a book that, uh, that young God in effect and said man was descended from some animal ancestry. They lined up on that day to get every last copy. It was such a relief to have an opinion that disposed of God. One bishop in England stood up against it and they made it sound as though the whole church was up in Ohio. This is nonsense. Most of the church was Quite relieved if they had uh, a scientific excuse to dispose of the Bible. Darwin's book came out in 1859, and there was no real protest against it apart from this one bishop within the church until the 1890s. And a little measure of protest began. And it's only been in recent years that you're getting some of these scholars and scientists who are writing against evolution. So it's not uh, a case of this poor persecuted Charles Darwin wearing the banner of truth. He was giving the world what they wanted. And they grabbed at it even though there was no evidence for it. Yes. This derives a new theory from this description. All right. 
very primitive people that have a mongoloid form humanoid in this very, very special place at this time. Yes, uh, that's uh, a very accurate statement because some of these uh, so-called missing links or primitive men and so on have been demonstrated to have been deformed people. And one of the classic cases in modern times of such a, a man as uh, the Neanderthal was a wrestler who was quite prominent in the 30s, a French wrestler, the Angel. Does anyone remember him? Now, he had the perfect Neanderthal skull, and for the same reason, it was his quality. Yes? Well, Yes, those are reconstructions. They're not actual skulls. They'll find a piece, maybe a tooth or a lower jaw or the cranium, and then they will reconstruct the rest and then build the whole skeleton in terms of what they think he should look like. So the these, which you see in most uh, museums of natural history, the ascending scale of uh, skeletons, are reconstructions, not actual findings. Yes. I believe the one thing that the evolutionists have never uh, been able to get over scientifically has been the inheritability of acquired characteristics. Yes. This is a fundamental problem. Uh, first, their science has demonstrated there is no such thing as spontaneous generation, and they have to have it to start evolution. And second, there is no evidence of the inheritance of acquired characteristics, Lamarckian uh, theory. And yet they have to have that, because everything that their science tells them is that what has evolved has to be involved, which means, therefore, the whole universe and everything in it, man, the sun, the moon, the stars, all are culture, everything, had to be involved in that first atom out of which everything came. So they made that atom bigger than God, or equal to God, because everything was involved in it. So this gets them into fantasy. As a result, what they try to do is to say, well, there had to be spontaneous generation, and they're going to try to sneak into acquired characteristics one way or another. Now, only a few have done it honestly. Freud said it was either God or the mark. If you did not have the inheritance of acquired characteristics, you had no evolution. So you had to have it. Lysenko and the USSR under Stalin, of course, maintained the same thing. And he was an honest Marxist because he said we cannot 
retain our position apart from the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Now, this was taught some years ago, you know. And uh, those of you who hear some old folks stating that, uh, well, uh, an expectant mother mustn't go to the zoo or do certain things because the baby can be marked, they're not representing folk superstitions. They are representing the science they got in school 60, 70 years ago. Because that was in the textbook at that time. And oh, about 1900, 1905, 1910, your, most of your biology textbooks still carry that Well, our time is up and we stand dismissed.